Turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Do you have an awesome God today? And that awesome God is holy. He's different, and he's our dad, and we've got to keep all that together somehow. So Matthew chapter 5, Jesus had not preached uh, in a significant way up until Matthew chapter 5. He went up on the side hill, and he was seated just like the rabbis would do. The people gathered around, his disciples were there. And in verse 2, it says, he opened his mouth and taught them. That's really unusual when the Bible says that they opened their mouth, because that's really all he did. It wasn't a prepared sermon. He didn't have sermon notes. It wasn't planned. It was spontaneous. And in this moment, powerful Holy Spirit is speaking through him, and we call that being filled with the Spirit. It's not a one-time experience. It's, it's any time we allow the Holy Spirit to have his way and speak through us. He supplies, he inspires, and this is an inspired sermon. And uh, uh, so it's just very unusual. It says he opened his mouth to speak. That'd be like saying, you know, he opened his mouth to eat. Of course you open your mouth to speak. But it noted that because that's, that's really all he did uh, in this moment. And then the powerful Holy Spirit, uh, who's the teacher, was, began teaching through him. In fact, hold your finger there, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And just go one page, and it's all red. Go to the next page, it's all red. Go to the next page, it's all red. At least in my Bible, it's all red. Go to chapter 7, it's all red. Right down to verses 28 and 29, and it becomes black again, and Matthew picks it up with commentary and says, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings. So that's his sermon. His sermon is uh, three chapters long, and it's one of the greatest uh, pieces of, uh, of, of preaching and oratory ever given. People like Gandhi would read this and just stay with it. He was so, he marveled at it. Many people... In, in, in history have marveled at the sermon. It says, so uh, when these, Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. And the scribes would often say something, then back away from it with qualifiers. Well, sometimes, and, and that happens in some cases. They didn't want to offend people, they didn't want to say anything that stepped on anyone's toes. And I've heard a lot of preaching like that through the years where they say something uh, kind of strict, then, then back off from it. And uh, they weren't speaking out of any personal experience. They were just saying what others had said. Jesus preached like nobody else, and he's preaching out of the fullness of his heart. He's preaching on what he's meditated on, and now the Holy Spirit is taking that and, and bringing it and making it come alive to these people on the side hill outside of Capernaum. And I thought it'd be worthwhile to take some time to, to look at what he taught because I think we need it. I think we need it today, but I think we're going to need it in the days ahead. So let's look at it. 
and, and see what he has to say to us here this morning. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to uh, echo in your own heart. You don't have to say it out loud, but I'd like you to practice a little something. Because if you look at verses 3 to 10, there's quite a few blesseds here. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. One way of saying it would be uh, to be congratulated that's, that's the kind of thing he's saying, like, like you're, this is a really amazing thing that's, that's happened to you, that you should be congratulated. It also means to, to be spiritually prosperous. So it's, you're, you're gaining something. You're, it's, it's enriching your life. But the main one that I'd like you to think about this morning is, is uh, it's, it's a spiritual advantage. So you're spiritually advantaged. And so let's look at that and see if it makes sense of these verses. Verse 3. You're to be congratulated if you're poor in spirit. That sounds different. Because we think of being poor or needy in spirit as you're, you're at, a, at a disadvantage. It's a, it's a bummer. It's a bad thing. Jesus doesn't see it that way. So he's saying it's uh, spiritually advantageous for you if you're spiritually poor. If you're poor in spirit, uh, let me just say this, make it simple. I feel spiritually poor all the time. I don't feel like I ever have it together. I feel needy. I feel like I, I, get, it, I get it together and then lose it. Uh, I, I, I get 10 steps out and it's nine steps back. And, and the advantage of that is it keeps me calling out to God. It keeps me crying out to him. It keeps me coming back to him again and again. It's not like I can just do this at one time and it fixes something that I don't need him anymore. I need him all the time. I, I just feel like I'm uh, uh, a struggling person who is in need of grace and needs to hear from God, needs Jesus to come to me, and that's, it keeps me coming back. It caught me out on my deck 4 o'clock this morning because I need him. I just couldn't lay in bed any longer. I just had to talk with him. I had to be with him because I feel needy. And uh, uh, David, here he is, uh, the richest king on earth. He's a multi-billionaire before there were billionaires. And I get that by seeing what he laid up to build the temple. I mean, just... It, it was, they couldn't even count the stuff that he laid up to put into the temple. So he's incredibly rich. But many times in the Psalms, he'd, he'd say, I am poor and needy. Do this for me. Help me with this because I'm poor and needy. And no matter how wealthy he was or how powerful he was as the greatest king on earth, he had a, a spiritual condition that said, I need more. And there's something about the things of God that the more you've had, you realize the more you need. I never reach a place. I never reach a place. I've not reached a place in a long time. And these days I've been going through a, a, a challenging spiritual time where I just find myself just con constantly coming back to him saying, help me, help me with this. He says, now listen, because you could shoot yourself in the foot and say, what kind of Christian are you? You're a lousy Christian. You should be up and at him and full of, full of uh, fire. And uh, I just don't feel that way. He says, it's spiritually advantageous for you to be constantly in need spiritually. 
It's not a disadvantage. God's attracted to that. It's spiritually advantageous because that's how you come into the kingdom. It's, it's saying, I can't, I can't, but you can, you can. It's saying, I need someone bigger than me. I need, I need a king who protects me. I can't protect myself. I need a king who provides for me. I can't provide for myself. I need a king to guide me because I can't figure this thing out for myself. He says, that's a spiritual, advantageous place to be. Is that where you are? I hope so. I believe many of you are. He said, blessed are those who mourn. And it sounds awful to say to be congratulated, but if you think of it as mourning puts you in a place to receive from God like nothing else, every one of us in this room will have five major moments in your life where you're so broken because you're mourning the loss of something, a, a mother, a father, uh, a major sibling in your life, uh, uh, someone significant in your life, if you live to my age, you're going to lose five of those. It's just there's, no matter how you do the math, you're going to lose five major people. Plus, you might have a business that goes down the tube or a church that you love that no longer exists or a vision that you had and you're full of vision and, and it didn't work out and it went, it went broke. It didn't pan out the way you thought it would. Mourning here has more to do with just the loss of something that you wanted, something that you really loved. And what it does, it gives Jesus major opportunities, at least five, to step into your now and draw close to you and show you that he cares. It shows you how generous he is and how awesome he is and how, how close he is. And, and notice it doesn't say it's believers I've met, I've met people who are so strung out on drugs and, and ended up on a, on a highway with their jaw busted, hanging out on their chest because their motorcycle slipped out from underneath them. And they say, in that, in that condition, I, I met Jesus. Jesus stepped into my now and showed me that he cared and showed me that he loved me. It was a point of entry where it allowed Jesus to touch them and manifest himself to them and show them that he's real and he loves them and he cares. And, the, and every one of us, and even the most ungodly people in our community, will have at least five of those major moments where they lose someone that the only person who really loved them was taken out of their life. And Jesus said, now here's the part that's spiritually advantageous for you. Not your loss but it gives me a chance to touch you. It gives me a chance to show you I'm there. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's an assuring thing. It's a, it's a promise that he takes as the pastor of, of hearts, and he steps into your life, and he shows you that he's real. He said it's to, it's to your advantage that you lose something, that you can really gain something. People get all, you know, in this whole thing of blaming God for those losses. I try to talk them out of that and just say, we well, just let that rest. Don't try to figure it out. Just let Jesus comfort you. Just let him comfort you. Just let him love you. He wants to do that. He wants to do that in your life. He wants to do it in my life. So there's a spiritual advantage to this.
Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I can't think of a single time in my Christian life where I've ever uh, stood on this promise. It's never meant anything to me. It's, I, it's just one of those verses I, I just have never gotten anything out of it. I, I'm not interested in the earth. I'm not interested in inheriting this earth. <laughs> and I'm not, not just the spear, not just the ball. I'm just, I just live uh, so detached, I guess. It's just never meant anything to me. I never really understood it. And then this past year, I felt God finally pulled together some things for me. I wrote a book called The Meekness of God. And it helped shape in my thinking the discipline of having to write that. Helped me understand a little bit more about meekness. And meekness, uh, the best definition I could come up with with God's help was meekness. Meekness to me means utterly dependent upon another. Being utterly dependent, dependent upon another. You can't do it. And, and so you come to this place of, of meekness where you say, help me. Do it. Help me with this. And he says, that kind of approach, that kind of attitude, that's why uh, there's a thing called the Word of Faith movement where it's, kind of, you know, that name it, claim it. And there's usually this attitude of arrogance that often goes with it that I think is, is so counter to what this verse is saying. And, and they have to repeat the, repeat the claim over and over and over again. Finally, uh, finally they get tired of it, I suppose. But I, I, I've tapped into this without knowing it. I've done this without realizing this is the verse. When we came to this building that you're sitting in, for probably two years, I would sit out in the parking lot. I'd often come up here to pray. There'd be a couple abandoned cars at the end of the parking lot. And I'd look in the windows sometimes and, and uh, walk around the building. But I'd sit in the parking lot and I'd say, Lord, is this for us? Is this building for us? I, I felt attracted to it. Jolene had set me up on it. I didn't even know it existed. I saw the little building near the road. And I always felt in my heart, that building belongs to us. I didn't know what we'd use it for. I'm not sure I even fully understand now what we're to use it for. But I always felt that was our building. Never saw this place. When I saw it, then I told Phil and Nelson, I said, you got to come and look at it. I think it might be our church building. First thing we all thought, there's just no way. That's way out of our league. It's too nice. <laughs> it's just too nice. It's too expensive. Such a quality building, and it's sitting here. It's, we didn't know it, but it had been sitting here for five years. We just put some money into a, a, a building fund. We put $1,500, that's all we could put together, into a building fund, because we're renting the Baptist church down the way. But as I'd sit here out here, I had this sense that there's something to this. And I kept saying, Lord, if this is you, put it in our hands. If, you, if this is you, give it to us. But we had no means, we had no power, we had nothing in ourselves to go and do it. So by our need, we became utterly dependent upon him. If he didn't give it to us, we wouldn't be able to do it. We wouldn't be able to pull together our resources. We weren't clever enough to figure it out. And then we found out that it was for sale. We got this phone call that it, that it was for sale. And a whole thing kicked in because we had no money. 
and, and, and other people wanted the building for their purposes. And so this whole thing came in where all we could do is lay ourselves before the Lord and be utterly dependent upon him and saying, Lord, if, if you don't give us this building, we have no power. We have no pull. I remember going before the Lord and saying, Lord, we have no money. We don't know anybody. We don't have any influence. We, don't, we, don't, we have no means among ourselves. We have nothing except your favor. If it's your favor to give it to us, give it to us. And he did. He did in the most remarkable way. And we inherited now a little bit of the earth. You're sitting inside that faith. And, and whether it's your business, whether it's you buying a house, or you getting a job, or you getting anything in this world, the way into that is, is becoming meek. Not being more smart, more clever, more cagey, more world, worldly wise and pulling strings and making things happen. It's this whole thing of saying, unless you do it, it can't happen. And it's the most spiritually advantageous place to be. When all your cows are sick, or some, some, some blight is going through your grain fields. And you can't do anything about it. And you come before God in meekness. And as mighty as he is, he's so attracted to humility. He's so attracted to meekness. That though he be a great God, he visits the beggar on the dunghill, is what the Bible says. I mean, it doesn't get any lower than that. And he's attracted. I think what made David the greatest king ever, may God promise him such great promises, is David had this ability, even though he was mighty, physically mighty, he became like a little baby. He would say things to, he'd say, I'm a weaned child on my mother's breast. Help me, oh God, help me. I can't figure it out. It's beyond me. And he went to meekness. What a place to come to where you can't figure it out. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't unbreak that habit. You can't even lose weight. You can't do the things you want to do. So you become meek. That's how you enter in to whatever you need. That's a whole different read on this verse. What do you want? What do you need? What if, the verse, what if the verse said this? Those who become more dependent, are becoming more dependent, have a spiritual advantage because everything always comes their way. That would, we'd be all claiming that verse. That's actually what it's saying. It's saying what you need in this life, what you need to make life work, what you need for your business, what you need for your family, what you need for the lost the lost loved one that you care about, the way, the way to come into that is through meekness. And Jesus develops that later on in the sermon. Let's look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. That sounds like a disadvantage, but let's read it. It says, to be congratulated. It's spiritually advantageous to be hungry. It's spiritually advantageous for you to be thirsty for righteousness. 
where you want to be right with God and you want to be right with man. The righteous, the Bible says, are bold as a lion. It, it gives you this confidence that you don't, wouldn't normally have. It allows you to come before Almighty God and ask for things and pray and approach him. And a lot of people don't have that. They don't have that sense of righteousness. So what they do is they submit their prayer requests or they're always asking others, would you pray for me? Because they have no confidence that God will hear them. That somehow they can tip their face to God and God will hear them and respond and come through and relate to them and be before them. This sense of righteousness is so valuable so incredibly powerful. It changes your prayer life. It, it changes how you step up to, to a trouble. It changes how you step up to a demon. It changes how you step up to any kind of problem. Being right with God uh, gives you this audacity, a confidence, not in yourself, but that God will actually do something on your behalf. It's a powerful, powerful thing. I didn't, I didn't realize the value of righteousness. Until one time, uh, my computer broke. This is before I had a Mac. And uh, <laughs> my computer was always breaking. And, and I took it to this guy to fix it. He had a little place downtown, and, and he would fix computers. And so I took my computer into him. And it's just, the place is just loaded with computers. And, and he's a little frazzled. And he said, uh, come back at 5, and I'll have it ready for you. And so I said, okay, and I went off and did my business and, and came back at five, and the computer was right where I had left it, and he hadn't got to it, and I was disappointed, you know, you're, it's your tool to work with, I wanted to take it home, I wanted to be able to go back to work kind of thing, and, um, and he looked at me, and I could see that he, he, he was disappointed, his shoulders sagged, and he shook his head, and he says, I'm sorry, I, I really am sorry, I just didn't get to it. I said, but I need it. He said, I'll tell you what, it's almost five o'clock. I'm going to lock the door so no one else will come in and I'll fix your computer while you wait and you can take it home. So I was happy with that. That's a good thing. So he went to work with a screwdriver opening up my computer. While he's working at it, we talked about the weather, business, computers. I don't know, nothing, nothing really that I can even remember. And then he stopped after about 10 minutes or so. And he says, um, there's something different about you. Uh, what is it? And I, I thought, all of a sudden it just occurred to me, we're locked in. And I was so bummed that the computer wasn't fixed, but now I realize, oh, oh, this is of God. I just knew this is a moment. This was set up. And all the disappointment of not having that all evaporated because now I don't care about it anymore. I know that there's a man who needs Jesus. And so I told him I was a Christian, a born-again Christian. And he says, I knew it, I knew it. He says, you're one of the good guys. I said, uh, what are you? He said, I, I don't want to tell you. And he started going back to working on the computer. I said, no, no, what, what, 
well, do you go to church? He says, yeah. I said, well, what church do you go to? He said, I don't want to tell you. I thought, that is really strange. And I said, Lord, what church does he go to? And the Lord said, he's a Mormon. So I said, you're a Mormon. And, and he said, uh, yeah, yeah, but as soon as I tell people, they hate me. They never want to talk to me. You, they don't treat me the same. I didn't want to tell you. And God gave me the grace just to be again to love him, not as a Mormon, but as a man, as a person. And, and something happened between us. You could just feel the Lord just knitting our hearts and we're talking. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. I'd never seen anything happen like this before. Guy stood up and put down his tools. And he looked at me with the, the most haunted face. And he said, when I married my wife, we kissed for the first time at our wedding. He said, I've never touched alcohol and I never had a, a cigarette has never touched my lips. He said, I tuck my kids to bed every night. I tuck them in and I read them the scriptures. He said, I've never missed church and I always tithe. He said, but I don't feel right with God. And it hit me. This guy, this guy is hungry for righteousness and he can't find it. And as he said that, I realized, oh, I'm, I'm right with God. And it, it, it's something that I cherish, but I really never put a price on it until I saw someone who was desperate for it, who couldn't find it. And I, I, I just said, uh, but I'm right with God. I believe I'm right with God, not because I do everything right, but because Jesus did what was right for the Father, and he graced me with a sense of being right with him. But I never knew the value until I saw a haunted face, a haunted eyes that said, I would, I would do anything to be right with God, and I can't seem to connect. And it set me on this whole course. You know, when we see people get baptized in the, in the tank, I saw some beautiful ones recently. And what they've done is they've stepped out, they've obeyed something that is illogical. It doesn't make sense to go in front of people and have someone lower you down in a, in a tank of water, in a stream or a lake. It's illogical. But God requires it of us. And so when, when they go forward and they do this, and Matt and Daniel and and uh, Jeremiah, they got the experience this recently. When they go forward to do that, God sees this crazy radical obedience that is illogical, but they're willing to obey. They'll do anything God says. And God meets them with a sense of being right with him that comes with that hard attitude. says, I'll just do whatever God requires because I want to be with him. And so he smears them with this beautiful sense of righteousness. So something happens in their brain that says, that tastes delicious. And so they start thinking throughout the week, what else can I do that's radical? What else can I do that, is, that God requires that I can do that again? Because now they're hungry for righteousness. They'll do anything to get that sense again and again. 
and again, the next thing you know, you're thirsty for it, and you look at something and say, I say no to that because that would make me unrighteous. And so it, there's, there's a spiritual advantage to always be longing to be right with God. To the point that you have a broken relationship, you say, I don't want to call them. I don't want to be the one to say sorry. I don't want to be the one. But I want to be right with God, and that requires being right with people to the best of my ability. And so you do things that you wouldn't normally do, but you're not doing it because you love them so much or because you want to. You're doing it because you want to be right with God. Blessed, spiritually advantageous as though the person who is hungry, who's thirsty, to be right with God. What a place to live. But it's like any meal, like your breakfast this morning, come 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock, you'll feel hungry again. You ate today, but you'll feel hungry again because there's no way in, in this th whole thing how it works where you're completely satisfied once and for all, never needing to experience it again. It's a, it's a sign of spiritual health that you're hungry just like it's a sign of physical health that you have an appetite. And it's not that you never get fulfilled, but even after you've been fulfilled, you're hungry again. You want more. You'll do whatever it takes to get back. You want that sense of being right with God. Powerful promise. For they shall be filled. I think if you just went through this and just took the promise part of it, it'd be enough to make you want to sign up for all of these things. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Uh, I think mercy is the premium on mercy is just going to go up. Stock market's going to go down. Mercy and faith, righteousness, they're going to go up. They're, that's what people are going to be willing to give up anything they have to have this sense of it. But this thing with mercy, mercy is, is, is God's unconditional love. Uh, and, and the way to get more of it, how many would like more mercy? You'd like to experience it. Well, the fast track to that is to extend it to people who tick you off. The fast track to getting more, let's read, it, let's read it backwards. I'm not going to play with your head. Let's read it backwards. For those who want to obtain mercy, that's us. We want more mercy. We, the way to get it is to be merciful. What happens is this, is, is when someone bumps into your car and, and instead of going into a road rage or someone cuts in you in the line of Aldi's or whatever it is that that rattles you for that moment. And our society is just really going crazy these days. With it. We're so easily offended. But if you want to taste mercy, what you do is, is you extend mercy to others and, and you get to taste it on the way through. You get to savor it on the way through. You say, God, give me a way, give me a way to see them. Uh, one definition of mercy or compassion, I suppose, would be your pain in my heart. I can feel something of what you're going through. Someone says, well, what if they're completely wrong and, and I need to be stricter? And Well, there's a time and a place for that, for sure. But let's err on the side of mercy. Let's go to mercy first. Let's, let's do whatever we can to start with mercy. 
And what happens is after a while, you get, it takes a while, but you get the sense, well, that's the way God is with you. That's just the way, well, he, he's that way with you. He'll cut you some slack. He'll, he'll be there for you even though you messed up. And you come away with this gradual buildup, a sense that God loves you just the way you are. And God, God's not writing you off. and God's not rejecting you. He's strict, and he, he has to be. And he disciplines us, and there are consequences for what we do. There are. That's why David, David would say, God would say, you know, I have to discipline you, David, because you, you, you counted the people. I don't understand that, why that was such an issue, but you counted the people. Therefore, you got, a, you got three choices. You know, we can give you this plague. We can turn you over to the, your enemies, and they can attack you. And he put timelines on all of these kinds of things. I think I haven't read it for a long time, but I think it was uh, three, three years, three months, and three days. And you got th three options. And the mercy, mercy of God is that what David did that was wrong or offensive had consequences. And David, David said, uh, I understand that. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of you to deal with me. I, he has this awareness of God being just and God being loving. And he says, you know, I, I think what I'll do is I'll choose you because I know you're merciful. He chose the three-day thing that would have been so hard to choose. And God was merciful and actually stayed his hand and cut it short because he is so merciful. But David, David wasn't, he had a fear of God because there are consequences. God will take you to the woodhouse. He will spank you. There are consequences for what we do, for what I do. For all of us. I'm aware of that. But I know that he's incredibly merciful. He understands me. He knows me. No one understands me like Jesus. He understands why I do what I do. And in that, he's able to be merciful. He's able to be merciful to us. I went to see my sister one time, and I parked my car in front of her house. And it was, it was a beat-up old... Pinto, and and uh, had just a, a bucket of rust. Pintos were a very cheap car, and and I, I pulled up in front of her, and as I slammed the door, the whole car shook, and it sprinkled, it sprinkled rust all the way around the car like cinnamon, just from closing the door. And eventually, the the doors seized up; they wouldn't even close. I had to crawl out the window. And as I'm in the house visiting my sister, there's a knock at the door, and there's a kid, a young teenager, and he's trembling. He's upset. And he says, uh, who owns the, the, the brown pinto out front? And I said, I do. And he says, I just backed into it. Come and look at it. And he was all upset. He was backing out of his driveway across the street, backed into the side of my pinto, shook some cinnamon out, <laughs> put a dent in it where there had already been a dent, dents upon dents. But he was visibly shaken. He was all upset. And I could smell booze on him. And, and he's apologetic. He's begging for forgiveness. He's asking. He's, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm so, I'll pay for it. Tell me what it costs. I'll pay for it. And uh, I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, it's not that bad. I, you know, like, I, I don't care. I mean, there's duct tape holding things together on the car. You know, there's, it's, it's a piece of junk. 
But the guy was so upset, and he, and he said, I'll, I'll pay for it to be fixed. He said, I'll give you $300. Well, I made like $150 a week. So like $300 is free money. It's just, it's too good to be true. I said, you've got $300? He said, he said yeah. He said, I've, I've got it. I'll just have to go get it, go to the bank, I'll get it, and I'll bring it right back up. I said, go get it. I'm thinking, hallelujah. But as I'm thinking about it, he's gone to the bank. I, I get this sense that Jesus wants to do something in the kid's life, and he wants to use me, and this dent was not an accident. It, it was all somehow. I'm not super big on everything happening as God. I don't think that way about everything, but I had this sense that this was a setup. And this whole scenario went through my head. I didn't even tell Heather. I didn't have the courage to tell her. I've just given them the money back and forgiven him and, and letting them know that I'm doing this because Jesus has forgiven me. And I, I, I've, I've done more to him, but he's just forgiven me. Kerblanche, across the board. So the kid comes in. He comes in the house. He sits at the table. He pushes $300 of new crisp bills across the table to me. And I slide them back. And his eyes get big. And I said, son, I just want you to know that I forgive you. I really don't want your money. But I want you to know that Jesus has forgiven me of everything I've ever done wrong. And he's forgiven me completely. And I want to forgive you the way he has forgiven me. And the kid burst into tears. He starts crying. <clears throat> and I'm not sure all what's going on. He said, man, this is hard. This is really hard. I said, what's so hard? He said, well, the reason I have the money is this old man backed into me, and I sued him. And today, I got the check, and I had a couple of beers to celebrate suing this guy, this old guy, for backing into my car, and it just happened to be the day he got the check. And God's using me to communicate his mercy. It's just something you never forget. Stuff happens to all of us that hurts, that ticks us off, that infringes on our rights, infringes on our, our dignity, the, our, our, our sensibility of what's right, what's wrong, what's decent. It happens to all of us. It happens in church. It happens outside the church. It could happen today before you have lunch. You have a chance just to extend mercy. And the beautiful thing is, is Jesus says, there's a promise attached to this. You get to taste it on the way through. And you get a sense that what he's like towards you. Amen? Verse 9, blessed are the people, uh, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to rush through this. Maybe I'll stop here. It's getting close to it. I don't want to rush through it. Can we pick this up at another time? Can we continue with it? Because I think there's some beautiful things in here that are, are worthwhile digging out. And uh, I've got a couple of these messages in my heart. I want you to have every spiritual advantage. I, I'm looking for every spiritual advantage in my life. He's saying, here's some ways to get a spiritual advantage in your life where everything is to your benefit and where you could actually say that was so bad 
but it was so good that I feel better off for it. You're to be congratulated. Let's stand together. And rather than rush away, I'd like us to do some business with God. Is he speaking to you today? Is he speaking to you today? Is he touching parts of your heart and life? Let's close our eyes. And the plus, the best place to begin is to say, Jesus, I know it's you touching parts of my life. You brought things to my mind today that I'd rather push away. Thank you for not letting me get away with it. Thank you for not letting me bury it. Jesus, I want to do what you want me to do. And you ask me to do hard things sometimes. But I want a spiritual advantage. I want a blessing. I want your blessing. I want my Christianity to work. I want my Christianity to be worthwhile, a life worthwhile. Jesus, now that you've spoken to me, now that you've touched me, I want to bring this before you. I want to resolve this before you. Help me. Help me. I don't know what you need. If you need a sense of his righteousness, if you need a deeper surrender of meekness, where you, you say, I can't anymore. I can't. I can't. I can't. But you can. You can. It's the way in. You pray. your words are spirit and they are life I need I need your voice in my life I need your word in my life it's the only thing that really makes sense it's the only thing that really gets through to me I want to live my life according to your word help me to apply this apply this in the integrity of my heart thank you for speaking to me
Thank you for dealing with me. Help me to live this out. Help me to walk this out. In Jesus' name.